Greetings one and all, and it's good to have you with us again as we come to another podcast from the heart of Spurgeon. If you're on Twitter, you can follow along as we post quotes from time to time at Reading Spurgeon, that's at Reading Spurgeon, or you can join us at mediagratii.org podcasts, and you can find there not only links to these podcasts, but also the sermons, the featured sermons that we're considering any given week. We read through the Spurgeon sermons once a day, and this week we're on sermons 262 to 268. Then next week, beginning on Sunday the 26th of September, it's sermons 269 to 275. And this week's featured sermon is number 267. Number 267, it's in the New Park Street Pulpit, Volume 5, and it is entitled The Tabernacle of the Most High. And it was delivered on the Sabbath morning, 14th of August, 1859. The text for Spurgeon's sermon on this occasion is Ephesians 2.22. In whom, that is in Christ, you also are built together for a habitation of God, a dwelling place of God through the Spirit. And the context is important. In sequence, the next sermons, the uh, they're actually not sermons so much as speeches on this occasion, are those to do with the laying of the foundation stone for the Metropolitan Tabernacle, the church building where Spurgeon was to apply his preaching trade for the balance of his ministry, a building uh, the facade of which still stands uh, and which has now behind it a rebuilt place of worship following, first of all, a fire, and then a bombing during the Second World War. But Spurgeon's doing an important thing here. He's making sure that in the excitement and the concern for the erection of a building where the church can meet, that God's people don't lose sight of the spiritual identity of the true church. I've known a number of older men who have mourned over the, the building projects that either they or others were engaged in, where they said that they saw great buildings erected while the church itself suffered. And it's significant then that in coming to this occasion, Spurgeon is making sure that the church's attention is not unrighteously diverted away from the things of first importance. He begins then by emphasising that there is no physical dwelling place of God in terms of a building upon the earth in these days. He says that there's a lot of Judaism in all our hearts where we go back to the old beggarly elements of the law instead of going forward and seeing in them a type of something spiritual and heavenly. He asks then the question, is there such a thing as a holy place anywhere? Is there any spot wherein God now particularly dwells? And he says, I trow not. And he's basically saying, by no means. That is not the case. God does not dwell in places made by hands. When men talk of holy places then, they seem to be ignorant of the use of language. Can holiness dwell in bricks and mortar? Can there be such a thing as a sanctified steeple? 
Can it possibly happen that there can be such a thing in the world as a moral window or a godly doorpost? Or put in those terms, you can see the nonsensical nature of the thing. Depend upon it, then, says Spurgeon, that one place is as much consecrated as another, and wherever we meet with true hearts reverently to worship God, that place becomes, for the time being, God's house. Now that's also significant, because he and that congregation are currently meeting at the music hall in the Royal Surrey Gardens, and there are a number of people who would have said to Spurgeon in his day that they ought not to meet there because it was unhallowed ground, it was not sanctified, it was a a place of carnal, worldly amusement. But Spurgeon's point is, on the one hand, that the Royal Surrey Gardens Music Hall is a perfectly suitable place for God's people to meet, and in so gathering, there they can truly worship God. But in the same way, when they've got their metropolitan tabernacle, that building in itself does not become a holy space and place, except in so far as it is the one environment where the people of God then will gather. The house of God, then, is built with the living stones of converted men and women, and the church of God, which Christ has purchased with his blood, this is the divine edifice, this is the divine building, this is the structure in which God dwells even to this day. Now, he's not denying what he calls a kind of sacredness of association. He understands that the building itself can become precious to us as the place in which we are accustomed to meet with God. Just like you may have a memory of a place where where perhaps you were converted or where you wrestled in prayer and obtained an answer from the Most High. And he says there's there's a consecration of memory that goes along with that. And that's not wrong as long as it doesn't become a superstitious awe in which we assume that God is tied to a particular place or environment outside of the gathering of his beloved people. And so the three things that he wants to deal with, and he's not really going to get to the third because uh, I wouldn't be surprised actually if he uh, now already realised that because that's quite an extensive introduction. But first of all, the church as a building, then as a habitation or dwelling place, and thirdly, as what she is soon to become, and I think we might need to take issue with that language, namely a glorious temple, but we'll come to that if we ourselves have time. First then, regarding the church as a building, and Spurgeon here is thinking of the church of Jesus Christ in one of the broadest senses, not primarily a local church gathered together, but rather all of those who are presently in the world who belong to Jesus Christ regardless of their present situation or denomination. And he says God's true people then, those who really know him through Christ having been made alive by the Spirit of God, may be found in every denomination some stray ones perhaps where we little dreamed of them, here and there a member of the church of God, hidden in the midst of the darkness of accursed Rome, now and then, as if by chance, a member of the church of Christ, connected with no sect whatever, far away from all connection with his brothers, having scarcely heard of their existence, yet still knowing Christ, because the life of Christ is in him. 
So he says, this is what I'm talking about. This church of Christ, this people of God throughout the world, by whatever name they may be known, are in my text compared to a building in which God dwells. And here Spurgeon indulges, he says, in a little allegory. And he talks about the the way in which God established this great spiritual building. For that's what he's talking about. And how he looked about for the chief cornerstone and couldn't find it amongst men or angels. And so there was a great concern, as it were. How shall this building be builded? How shall this building be established? Who can be found who can bear the weight and establish the lines of this great building? Well, of course, it is Christ Jesus himself who is the chief cornerstone. Put together, the apostles and the prophets and the teachers would be a foundation of quicksand. But we have a God who has become man and the foundation stone has been laid and it has been embedded in blood and it must lie nowhere else but in Christ's own gore. And it's then that the foundation stone being laid, that with the cement of the blood of Jesus Christ, the living stones are brought in and laid side by side to build this great church of Jesus Christ. Ah, says Spurgeon, this is what is taking place. This is the church about which I speak. And there's no house like a heart for one to repose in. Here a man may find peace in his fellow man. Here is the house which God delights to dwell in. And it's built of living hearts, all beating with holy love, built of redeemed souls, chosen of the Father, bought with the blood of Christ. The top part is in heaven. Many of the living stones are now in the pinnacle of paradise. We are here below. The building rises. The sacred masonry is heaving. And as the cornerstone rises, so all of us must rise until at last the entire structure from its foundation to its pinnacle shall be heaved up to heaven. And there it shall stand forever. The new Jerusalem, the temple of the majesty of God. It's a glorious view of what we might sometimes describe as the universal church. All God's people throughout time and space upon whom God has set his love. Spurgeon is thinking of them in their union with Jesus Christ. And he wants us to understand what this building is like. And he just has three brief points about this glorious temple. First of all, it's built according to rule to compass and to square, and there will not be a single mistake in it. I think of a man who uh, works as an engineer, and he has to deal with architects who have plans for uh, the particular building elements uh, that he makes and fits in the firm to which he belongs. And the number of times he he talks about the uh, mistakes that are made or the the great notions that don't come really anywhere close to reality and how often the measurements are put in wrong or the wrong materials are being suggested. Never in the church of Jesus Christ. God puts everybody in, in just the right place, out of just the right material. You are where you ought to be, so keep there. There is no mistake don't wish to be more prominent or indeed perhaps less prominent, but take the place that God has put you in. The top stone's not the foundation and the foundation doesn't stand at the top. 
Every stone is the right shape. Every stone is of the right material. The structure is adapted for the great end, the glory of God, the temple of the Most High. It is divine wisdom that is putting the church together. And that stops us complaining. It stops us resenting. It stops us being lazy. It reminds us that we are who and what we are by wise grace at work in our souls. Then notice too, not only the wisdom that is involved in the building, but also the impregnable strength of the church. This is God's building, often attacked, but never taken. The church is not in danger, says Spurgeon, and she never can be. Let her enemies come on, she can resist. Her passive majesty, her silent rocky strength bids them defiance now. Let them come on and break themselves in pieces. Let them dash themselves against her and learn the ready road to their own destruction. She, the church, is safe and she must be safe even unto the end. Thus much we can say of the structure, built by infinite wisdom and impregnably secure, but furthermore glorious for beauty. You can feast your eyes upon God's construction from dawn to dusk and then begin again. Christ himself takes delight in it. God rejoices over the church as he never did even with the world that he had made. Think then of God himself looking at his church and so fair and so beautiful the structure that he sings over his work and as each stone is put in its place, divinity itself sings. Was ever song like that, asks the preacher. Oh, come, let us sing. Let us exalt the name of God together. Praise him who praises his church, who has made her to be his peculiar dwelling place. And so Spurgeon lifts up our hearts. If we thought of the church the way God thinks of his church, what a difference it would make to our, our expectation and our anticipation and our engagement and our delight in the people of God. But he's also moving us on because this building, this spiritual building is a dwelling place. It is the habitation of God. The church of God, says Spurgeon, has this for her peculiar or distinctive glory that she is a tenanted house. She is the habitation of God through the Spirit. Too many churches are nothing but a mass of dull, dead formality. No life of God there, says Spurgeon. We need to take heed, lest our churches become just like that, combinations of men without spiritual life and consequently houses uninhabited because God is not there. There are too many churches where we seem to imagine that mere activity is the same as spiritual vitality, but it is not so. The church is the dwelling place of God among his lively people. And a true church then, visited by the Spirit of God, is a place where conversion and instruction and devotion and the like are carried on by the Spirit's own living influences. Such a church has God for its inhabitant. It's a wonderful thought. It's a wonderful image. And Spurgeon, as he so often does, is now, as it were, going to turn it in the light and see how its different facets glint and gleam. So, if a church of living souls is God's own house, what does this mean? A few thoughts. It's the place where a man solaces and comforts himself. You go out to do battle, but you go home to rest. 
you go home because it's the place where you can be refreshed and delighted, where you can truly be at peace. And God calls the church his home, his habitation. Yes, abroad he hurls the thunderbolt and lifts up his voice upon the waters. He breaks the cedars of Lebanon. He rides out to war. He lifts himself up in the majesty of his strength. God in himself, most high and most terrible. But the church is where, as it were, he lays aside his sword and his spear, and he sits down among his children, and he takes his ease. Yes, don't think I venture too far, says Spurgeon. He rests in his love. Here, though a consuming fire, a terror and a flame in himself, we see the love and the kindness and the sweetness of our heavenly Father. The church is the place where God comes to rest and to enjoy his comforts. What a marvellous thought. Furthermore, it's the place where he shows his inner self. God does not wear the mask at home. Yes, he's the king, the king still at home as abroad. But he's a king who's like other, the king is like other men. When he's abroad, he's dressed in his majestic robes and he can seem most distant and most high. But at home, he's amongst his children. At home, he will stoop down and unbend himself. And so the God who is full of majesty and glory and greatness is at home showing all his heart to his beloved children. He pities as a father pities his children. He knows our frame. He draws near to us. What a sweet thing, says Spurgeon, to think of God at home with his family, happy in the house of his church. But another thought strikes the preacher. A man's home is the centre of all he does. And he thinks of a man with a big farm or a, a large estate. And he says there's so much going on around it. But in the middle of all the outhouses and the hayricks and the barns, there is the house. And that is the centre of all. That is where the, the beating heart of the whole operation is. Yes, God is abroad then in the world, busy here and there. But all his business tends to to his church. The whole operation runs for the sake of the house and the children who are in it. So there's not an archangel that fulfills the behests of the Most High, but really carries the church upon his broad wings and bears up her children lest they dash their feet against a stone. All the storehouses of God are for his church. This is the dwelling place of the Most High. This is the object of his concern and his delight, and all things tend for her good. And then one last thought along this line. We have heard much talk of late about the French invasion. Uh, that would have been true at the time, uh, mercifully, especially for the Brits, not uh, something we've had to worry about for a little while. But, says Spurgeon, his point is, what would happen if the French poured over the English Channel? He says we'd fight. We'd fight for our homes. We will not allow our own houses to be sacked and stormed. We would stand up for the nation to which we belong and the homes which belong under God to us. And so while God has a heart of love and while he calls his people his own house and his habitation, we ourselves are secure for God will fight for us. 
And then thirdly, and lastly, he wanted to show what it meant for the church to be by and by, that is, in time to come, God's glorious temple. Perhaps you remember that I said toward the beginning that the third point was what the church is soon to become, that is, a glorious temple. Now, actually, the text that Spurgeon is preaching from there in Ephesians chapter 2 does not tell us that the church will become a temple, but that the church is the temple, that it is now the temple of God, that it is that spiritual counterpart to the old covenant temple that Solomon built in Jerusalem and in which uh, the, the kings and the priests then served. But we are now the temple of God. What Spurgeon's trying to remind us about is the fact that the beauty of this temple is not yet fully seen. But there's a danger that we put that too far away, that we lose sight of the fact that now we are exactly what Spurgeon has said, the dwelling place of God. That's the temple language. But Spurgeon wants us to remember that the work is not yet done, that the church is rising today and shall continue to rise until the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established upon the top of the mountains. And perhaps here a bit of his eschatology is rolling into his thought, a time when all nations shall call her blessed and him blessed too, when they shall all say, come and let us go up to the house of our God that we may worship him. Then shall the church's glory begin. And when this earth shall pass away, when all the monuments of empires shall be dissolved and run down in the common lava of the last burning, then shall the church be caught up in the clouds and afterwards be exalted to heaven itself to become a temple such as I has not seen. And whatever may be your eschatology, surely the prospect of the temple of God completed and revealed in its glory lifts our hearts. If you like now to, to use this sort of illustration, the temple of God with its glorious cornerstone, absolutely secure and laid upon a foundation that will last, made up of the prophets and the apostles, that church is being built and the stones are being brought in. But it's like one of those building sites, perhaps, in, in London, where the scaffolding's all about it and you've got the uh, the the great sheets to hang about it to hide what looks like the, the mess and the muck of the work that is going on. But there shall soon come a time when the scaffolding comes down, when all the sheeting is pulled away and the glory of the finished work is seen and the church as the dwelling place of God shall never more be traduced or sneered at or slandered but shall be seen in all its beauty and glory, Christ under and among her. And then Spurgeon's point then, if that's all so, if the church of God is and always will be the house of God, what should you and I do? What's the practical implication of this? And he goes right for the heart. Why we should earnestly seek as being a part of that temple, always to retain the great inhabitant. The church is no church where God himself is absent. It is God present in his grace and in his glory that makes the church to be the church, and that is true considered as a whole and in every local 
concrete, and by that I don't mean bricks and mortar, but local gathered church expression. It is God's presence that defines us. So let us not grieve his spirit, lest he leave his church for a while. Above all, let us not be hypocrites, lest he never come into our hearts at all. And if the church be God's temple and God's house, let us not defile it. Friends, if you and I call ourselves Christians, we defile the church when we defile ourselves, for we are members of the body. We are living stones in the building of God. And when any one is not clean and pure and straight as it ought to be, then it mars the perfection of the whole. So take care that you be holy just as God is holy. Do not let your house become a house for the evil one. Think not that God and the devil can dwell in the same habitation. Give yourself wholly to God. Seek for more of his spirit, that as a living stone you may be wholly consecrated and never be content until you feel in yourself the perpetual presence of the divine inhabitant who dwells in his church. Oh, my friends, if we are God's people, I don't know where you'll be worshipping this coming Lord's Day, but I hope you'll go to that place, whether it's a, a grand building or someone's home or a field outside, whether or not you're applauded by men or despised by those around you, whether or not it has physical beauty or it's plain and simple. Let's us go with the the sense that we are going to a spiritually beautiful gathering, to the building that God himself is making, to the dwelling place of the Most High in all his goodness and his grace and his glory. Let us esteem it accordingly. Let us go and invest with that in our minds and in our hearts. And may God be pleased not only to keep us from sin, but to grant that as we seek after holiness in the fear of the Lord, where we are, the church of Christ in all its beauty may be seen. Let's not be distracted by the material with which we have to deal. However sanctified it may be in our memories and in our experience, however much the association may be of our blessings here, let us make sure that above all things it is the church of Jesus Christ the living stones connected to their living head, which is our great concern and our great pursuit, that God may be among us and we may bring glory to him. This is From the Heart of Spurgeon with me, Jeremy Walker. I hope that today's podcast has been a blessing to your soul. If you would like to share that blessing with others, please leave us a review on your favourite podcast app, especially if you live outside the United States. It makes a genuine difference. Thanks very much for listening.